Hi, my name's Peter Bureau, and I specialise in behavioural strategy. And what that means is looking at where people are at, where they're wanting to move to, and how do we not only motivate people, but also work to bringing out their high side, their best side, their aspirational side. Uh, And to do that, I work with a a team of uh, 20-odd psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, behavioural economists, management consultants, neuroscientists, and we bring these different disciplines together to look at how we can affect change in a human way, in an effective and a sustainable way. Well, Peter, thank you for joining us in the studio today. Great to be here. So, Peter, you spend your days teaching behavioural strategies to leaders um, within a variety of organisations. Why do clinicians and health services need to know this? So we learn a lot about disease and about the human body, but it's quite different from the human mind. And so if it were simple, you could give a simple logical explanation and people would stop smoking and they'd stop eating sugar. But the reality is people don't do that. And so we've got to look at how are we going to motivate people for their own good to do what's needing to be done. And when we communicate, we talk about change or we talk about standards or introducing a new IMR system or whatever it is that we're doing. How do we get people to actually engage with that on their own terms? So if you try to change people's worldview, often that's considered to be manipulation. But if you can engage people on their terms and explain why it's being done in a way that they understand, that's called education or informing. Uh, we've got to get more sophisticated in the way we do that, not only in the way we communicate, but also in the way we lead and the way we work with our teams. So it's about communicating within your team, but also in healthcare, communicating and engaging with our patients? Exactly. It's, it's right across the board. And we're taught how to communicate logically and rationally and fairly and accurately, but we're not taught how to communicate emotionally with engagement with a sense of being able to build trust. So it's a whole new area. It's a whole new way of seeing your interaction. And this is you know, often what makes a fantastic clinician is somebody who is not only accurate but also able to engage. And I think something that's also interesting with communication is that you can communicate a message but then is that is that message understood the way you'd hoped it was? Exactly. And what we know now and what – for those of you who are listening, uh, who are studying neuroscience, what we know, of course, is that the emotional context in which somebody receives a message is absolutely critical to the way it's interpreted. So you can be rational and you can be factual and you can be clear, but that won't get you there. So there's another whole area where we start looking at emotions and a context and an environment and how do you structure that in a way that is going to be productive. And part of the answer to that, by the way, is we have a we, we are obsessed with one-on-one communication. But in reality, all communication is received within a team, a family, or a group. And so one of the things that we need to move from is a focus on the individual to a focus on the family or the focus on the ward or a focus on a delivery team. It's all team-based. 
So that's that's the big shift. You know, as a, as a clinician, you think that what you're doing is you're doing one-on-one communication. What in fact you're doing is you're communicating to that person and to the family and to their friends. And if those friends and family don't agree with you, you know, you're not likely to win the argument. Because we don't live in isolation exactly or work right. in isolation. But all our models are about isolation. So your teaching is based around a system that you've developed called the NeuroPower system. Can you explain the system and how it works? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll just explain the name because it does sound a little bit strange to some. The idea here is simply that in this day and age, everywhere we go, we hear about cyber power. And when we work on major projects, people say, well, what's your cyber power behind this? What's your, uh, your IT system? What's the cloud strength? How are you going to be able to, to work with this big data and make this particular implementation work? So there's the cyber power, but then there's the neuropower. And the neuropower is your people power. And, and neurons work quite differently from cyber power. Everywhere that we, we – and we work uh, right around the world uh, in multiple sectors – And what we find is that more and more we're wanting to treat our computers more and more like people. So we want our computers to feel and to think and to respond and to interpret nuance. And interestingly, we're wanting our people to act more and more like computers. Now, our simple perspective here is why don't we treat computers like computers? Now, they're much better at big data analysis, a pattern recognition, a whole bunch of stuff, much better than the human brain is. And why don't we treat our people like people? But to do that, we need to really understand neuropower. So the thought is in the same way that you've got vacuuming and when, when somebody vacuums the floor, you say they're hoovering. Mm-hmm. My hope would be in, in 10 or 15 or 20 years, people would say, well, what's your cyber power on this project? What are your assets and what's your neuropower? So it's your people power. But, but the power of people we can find in the brain. And so we need to really understand the brain and not just from a deficit model, but from an extraordinary one. When you think of human beings, human beings as individuals can achieve very little. Human beings as part of a team, as part of a collective, achieve unbelievable things. Everything where you're sitting at the moment, what you're looking at when you look out that window probably as, as you're listening to this, whatever you're doing, human beings have worked in teams to create that. We know a little bit about teams but nowhere near as much as we could. And one of the breakthroughs from neuroscience is we're a herd animal. And so we work as part of a team. So our communication needs to be team-based. Our engagement needs to be team-based. It's a team approach. I love the team approach. And often we're so much um, focused on ourselves and what we can achieve. That's right. And so we would say the smallest unit of production is the team. It's not the individual. And, and what the reason that's relevant is as we start to look at organisational performance, whether or not that's in the health sector or, or in any sector, we work uh, across many different sectors, whether it's aviation, aviation security, uh, in anti-terrorism, but in introducing uh, new laws and in community engagement, uh, in manufacturing. In each of these areas, when you look at the individual, individuals can perform well for a short period of time, but it's not sustainable. Teams, teams can perform in a sustainable level. And one of the reasons for that is everybody has an off day. We weren't designed to be full on every hour of every day. A team can say, you know, he's going through a difficult period. I'll lean in today. Some people like working long hours. Some people like 
working shorter hours, the team can accommodate all that. And it flexes and we do each other's favours and we help each other out. And what ends up happening in the team is resilience, regenerative energy, support, love. The team actually performs well. And in right, right around the world in the most unlikely sectors, you find that where there's a focus on teaming and on team performance, you get not just higher creativity, but you get more sustainable, consistent performance. You said before that um, we all have an off day every now and then um, and that if the team knows about that, they can support us and work together. Um, Do we have to communicate that though, that we're having an off day? Do we have to just be honest and say, hey, I'm I'm not having a great day today. Absolutely. And, and well, well, yes, and that's why when Google did its research of literally millions of teams to say what makes for high performance, psychological safety is the most important element. So psychological safety really means not just that you're feeling warm on the inside, but that you can talk about your performance. Now, if you're in a mission-critical environment, let's say you're climbing a mountain, What we know is that if you are hanging off the rope of somebody else, you don't want that person to feel frustration or anger or have unresolved issues because when you feel a lot of those emotions, it impacts your body, your ability to physically hold on. So what they find is that there are a lot more fatalities if that team isn't resolved. So if you're feeling off and you're on an oil rig, you don't go in that day because you know that you're going to be putting yourself and others at risk. Now, with mature teams, you don't need to say too much. You can tell that the person's going through a bad day and they say, don't worry about it, Stan, I'll look after that today. Don't worry about that, so-and-so. You know, why don't we work together as a team? And when you think of a lot of the high-performance ED teams, you think of the high-performance teams that we've got, Queensland Health, they work together exactly like that. You know, who's actually running the show? Well, sort of depends on the situation and the day and high performance mature teams will move that around to whoever is in the best state because there's often shared knowledge within that group. But this isn't quite how we see it. It's quite amazing, isn't it? It is. Um, Peter, a lot of what you teach is centred on the importance of a growth mindset as opposed to a fixed mindset. Can you explain these two mindsets and why a growth mindset is what we should be encouraging clinicians to adopt? Yes, well, Dr. Carol Dweck looked at this whole idea of growth versus fixed mindset because she was interested in what is it that enables some people to be successful and others to be unsuccessful? What is the mindset element? Is it their IQ? Is it their EQ? And what she discovered was that there's a fundamental uh, mindset that you can have which says there are some who believe that there is There are intelligent people and less intelligent people. There are those who can and those that can't. And it's almost as if it's fixed. You can't do much about it. Now, what this means is that you create hierarchies Mm -hmm. and you say, for example, you you study, um, you know what you're doing, you've spent your time going through the appropriate qualifications. But once you are at that point, there's this sense that um, if you don't do as well as you could have, something is fundamentally wrong, you should have got that right and you should get it right every time. And it puts this enormous stress on the system uh, and on, on the human system. So when there are challenges that sit outside your specific abilities, you avoid them. Um, when there are obstacles, what you say is, well, 
you know, this is something that I can't fix and I don't know about. So you give up early. Uh, and you see, because there are, you know, there are bright people and there are not so bright people, and while there's an element of truth to that, as a mindset, what it says is, if I can't solve it, nobody will be able to. And so you end up with this, you give up very, very quickly. Now, the growth mindset in contrast to that says everything we do, we need to be constantly learning. We need to be constantly developing. Constant. So when we, when we get a challenge, we embrace challenges because it's an opportunity to learn from them. Um, when we have obstacles, we persist because we say, we're going to get to the bottom of this. And it's not something I know the answer to, but I am absolutely committed to trying to work this out. And we see effort as a path to mastery rather than this idea that it's almost if I have to work this hard, surely something's wrong, as opposed to if I have to work this hard, we're going to get a breakthrough. So it's it's a combination of persistence and openness and this idea that within a growth mindset, you can learn from everybody around the group, not necessarily because of the expertise, but because of the mindset or their approach or their way of working. And it means that life becomes a journey of learning where you're constantly learning and you see everybody else learning and you encourage learning. This is the growth mindset. If you have a fixed mindset, can that be changed to a growth mindset? Well, absolutely. And this is this is part of the thought is, well, what are the neural correlates to that? What what happens when people are in a reactive state? And I, you know, I don't have to look too far away because I can see that in myself. When you've got a, a team that challenges and supports you, they'll actually call you on it. And so they'll say, Peter, I think you're in a fixed mindset. And what happens in that situation is I become reactive. So somebody says something and I'll, I mean, sometimes I get that sense of self-righteousness. The others may not relate to it. But for me, I feel this spark of anger and it's like, well, it's an idiot idea. It's a stupid idea. And what that's doing is it's closing it down. I'm making it into an absolute. There's a good idea or a bad idea. And so that person tries to express, I'll close them down because, well, for a start, they're not qualified in that area. What would they know anyway, right? Now, this is, you know, I've, I've written the book on it and yet I still do it and I can feel this internally. I've got to pause, take a breath, stop and say, this is me being reactive. This is me reacting from an emotional perspective rather than from a rational perspective. So when we started looking at the growth mindset and the fixed mindset, what we discovered was it lines up quite nicely with what in behavioural economics economics, they talk about system one and system two. System one is this heuristic-based emotional response. System two is far more rational and lines up broadly with the neuroscientific view, which is you've got a midbrain function, which is emotional, and you've got the cerebral cortex, which is far more, particularly the, the prefrontal and frontal cortex, which is far more rational. And so you've got this tussle. Now, when you feel threatened, and we all feel threatened, when you feel challenged or when you feel impatient, when I and we've all got an emotional mind, just happens to be anger. When I feel that sense of anger, it's because something's happened that's triggered my midbrain response. And neuroscientists have coined this. We talked about system one, system two. It's not all that catchy. But uh, neuroscientists have used this metaphor, which I really like, which is the elephant and the rider. So the idea is that your emotional system is like the elephant and your rational system is like the rider. So my elephant gets self-righteous. Now, if you're riding an elephant and your elephant decides to get angry, what are you going to do about it? 
Right? So it's like the elephant can do it. The ele- you can sit there on the top of the elephant, but if the elephant wants to play, you know, wants to run amok, there's very little you can do about it. And that's, that's how it feels. It, there's this idea of the elephant and the rider. So as a team, we create a safe environment, and that's once again why psychological safety is so important as a base requirement of teamwork, so that if I start to move into that self-righteous approach, my team are able to work with me to say, do you think you might be being a bit reactive there? And that's all I need to be able to go, yeah, you're absolutely right. Let's open, say what you said again and I'll try and listen this time instead of just batting it back, right? So there's this instant assessment we make and we each have, each of us have a bell curve. So this is the bell curve in life. So for some of us, it might be the bell curve of beauty or the bell curve of, of intelligence or the bell curve of strength. And whenever we assess somebody else against our bell curve and they don't come up as highly as we do on the bell curve in the top quartile, we get a, we get a hit of dopamine, which says we're pretty good. Is it a leader's role to try and move their team from a fixed mindset to a growth mindset? Or is it more about understanding where people are at and then being able to work within that understanding well, I think it's, it's a great question because the role of the leader is to create a safe environment so that you don't get the reactivity. So we're all reactive in a high-stress situation. Um, now, you can't remove the stress. So the question is how do you work in a high-stress environment without triggering that midbrain amygdala response? Um, and the amygdala is simply saying this is a dangerous environment and so you need to go into fight, flight, withdraw. Um, or comply, right? This is your, your midbrain immediate response. And so being aware of what's really helpful is for, if we're working together, for you to be aware of what my trigger is and for me to be aware of what your trigger is so that when you trigger me, which you will, I'm able to identify it and you're able to identify it. The confounding variable in all this is when I'm triggered, I'm absolutely certain I'm right, which is what gives me the right to be self-righteous. And when I'm absolutely certain, that's when I'm often least right. For all of us, it's the same. Because what's happening is, in your brain, literally the blood's coming out of your frontal lobes, it's going into the midbrain, and you're narrowing your focus into a much smaller part of reality than's actually there. So you, you actually restrict the amount of data that you have to work with, and so you feel certain about it. But that's because you're only seeing a partial view on reality. So cognitive bias, when we work a lot with boards, cognitive bias is about saying, what's your cognitive bias? And if, if you know, cognitive, cognitive biases are blind. That's what a blind spot is. You can't see it. So when I first started working with boards, we would calculate once we understood their core belief style, their emotional style, we could calculate the cognitive bias of that group of people. And the group would invariably say, no, we don't think that's our bias at all. Of course, because that's the definition of a bias. So what we found we had to do was record the group, play it back and say, what biases can you see? And then say, these are your top five. And then we can actually give them a uh, ranked score, right? Right through all their different cognitive biases. Because what's interesting is when you play to your cognitive bias, you feel really comfortable. So often chairs or leaders will say, are you comfortable? Well, the problem with comfort is that it's often a, it's a confirmation of your bias, 
which is why amazing people get together at, at a board level or in a leadership team and they make fundamentally dodgy decisions, but it feels right. It's fascinating. So McKinsey looked at, looked at this whole area on boards and said, if you've got a board that is not aware of its cognitive biases, and there are generic biases, which we all have, but then there are your particular biases and around the group, if your um, board doesn't understand it, there's a 7% share price difference. That's huge. So this is just because the decisions you're making are consistently biased. Now, what's interesting is the executive team can see it in the board. The people under the executive team can see it in the executive team, but we can't see it ourselves because by definition, it's a cognitive bias. It's a blind spot. Peter, I want to move on to to core beliefs and you've written a book about this. How do our core beliefs influence our ability as clinicians and effectiveness as leaders? So what the core belief is really looking at is, uh, yeah, the emotional system is um, simultaneously very complex and relatively simple. So you know, um, I've seen different studies that have identified between 300 and more than 1,000 different emotions, you know, nuances in terms of emotions. But what's interesting is when, when we look at how you manage these different emotions, they fall into nine broad categories. And so we've grouped together the emotions based on how we manage them, as in internally, how we as human beings manage these emotions. And these emotions frame up the way you see the problem, what you get energised by. So some of us are energised by being certain about something. So that's going to have a huge impact. You know, at what point do you stop testing and make a call, others of us will tend to be just a little conceited, so we won't test enough. Some of us aren't really all that impressed with testing. We want to talk and we want to interact. Now, these are midbrain emotional responses. And so we balance this rational rider with this emotional elephant all the time. Jung, the Swiss psychologist, said that consciousness itself is being able to tell the difference between the two. We're working with a, a car manufacturer at the moment in looking at how do we create personality for a car, for an automated car in the future. And the interesting part around that is if you just have a very rational car, it's okay, but it's not very interesting. What we want to find when, when, you, when you're dealing with another human being, what makes a good TV program or a good movie is to see the tension between what we want to do emotionally and what we want to do rationally. These are often at odds. They're not aligned at all. So as a clinician, it's important for you to be able to see what is your cognitive bias, not only in terms of your diagnosis and and your treatment plan, but also in terms of the way you run a team. And it doesn't mean that you need to necessarily change it, but it doesn't mean that you need to be aware that it is one of a number of different biases and everybody's biased. Now, when you get two people together who are biased in different areas, which we are, that's when you end up with conflict that can't be resolved. So midbrain to midbrain, it's a really simple system. The midbrain really is about keeping you alive, not keeping you happy. So this elephant part is about keeping you alive, not successful, alive, not related, right? alive, not credible. So it's a very episodic way of seeing the world. And if you get through the interaction alive, it's done its job. Trouble is, 
that doesn't do so well for your career or for clinical outcomes or for team building or trust. So for you to be able to understand your own cognitive bias, your own emotional reactions, to be able to, uh, for people to know that you know that is what builds the trust. So if I say to one of my team members, mm-hmm. look, I, I, sometimes I can react very quickly and I can be a little self-righteous. If I do that, you need to call me on that. That changes the relationship from them saying, you know what, I just don't want to work with this guy anymore to he did mention that, I'll call it and I'll see how he responds. And if I respond from a growth mindset perspective, that builds the strength of the relationship. And what you end up with, this is this is the difference between those of us, you know, when you're married, if you stay together, you can work with each other and you can manage each other's reactivity. Those of us who don't stay together, it's usually because we can't manage each other's reactivity. And so a lot of teams, we, we, we work with teams that are going through challenging times. And, and the health system at the moment has phenomenal uh, stress uh, embedded within the system. And so you've got you know, we've got more stress now than we've ever had in the past, both in terms of expectations of patients and, um, you know, governance issues and resourcing issues. And, you know, there's so much for our teams to be able to deal with. There's a lot of stress. When team members are able to work with each other's emotional uh, positions and not feel as though they need to mask, and of course, Matt Lieberman did some fascinating work at UCLA about the impact of masking. Masking is where you feel angry, but you mask it. And he discovered that there was massive uh, drop in cognitive ability. So when we do reviews on boards and we're looking at why is it that this very competent group of individuals made really inappropriate decisions, particularly in, in financial services, it's often because the, the board itself, everybody was masking with everybody else and they just ran out of cognitive ability to be able to solve the problem. And when you're masking, does it build up? It does. And so what ends up happening is you can successfully mask, but you don't have a lot of, you're so busy masking how you're feeling that there's virtually no cognitive capacity left to do the work and solve the problem. So you end up with people going, I'm fine. Yes, that's okay. Let's just get through this question. Why don't we just, right? It, rather than everybody relaxing, everybody feeling calm and then making the the, the best decision in that in that situation. So when I went through university, I was taught uh, never let emotions get involved in um, in a decision. Well, you can't make a decision without emotion. It's an electrochemical system. So you know, you've, there's got to be emotion in the system. Now you can manage that, um, but you need to acknowledge that. And if you can acknowledge the emotion, understand it, know it, and I was never taught that at uni. And you can not only know it, but also label it. And Matt Lieberman, once again from UCLA, discovered that in a group, if you can label the emotion and table the emotion, in other words, accurately identify what the emotion is and tell the group, it halves its intensity. So really good teams do exactly that. That's what we train boards and exec teams to be able to do, to identify what is that emotion and not because you're unprofessional, and not because you, you can't manage yourself, but just what are you feeling at the moment? And for me, I might say, look, I'm feeling really frustrated because I really thought this was going to be what happened and this is what happened. But just by articulating it and not creating a whole narrative around it, but just articulating the emotion and tabling that in front of the group, everyone goes, good, thank you. Now we can help. Now we can understand where you're coming from, what your emotion is at. 
just by me doing that reduces the intensity of it by 50%, which enables me to be much more in growth mindset. And finally, Peter, what is the one piece of information or advice you would like clinicians to take away from this podcast? One of the things that we're very bad at, but we all think we're brilliant at, is mind reading. We really think we're good at understanding the other person, and we're not. So the most powerful thing that I've learned, and, you know, I've written these books and I've spent the last literally 25 years studying this, is I project what I'm feeling onto the other. I project what I'm thinking onto the other. Very rarely is it right, but if I tell them this is what I think you're thinking, half the time they'll agree with me because they couldn't be bothered fighting with it. So I don't get good feedback from that. So what you end up with is we all go around thinking that we're brilliant at reading the situation. You've really got to, if there was one thing you could take away, it's simply to say, I, I don't think I understand where you're coming from. Tell me, tell me what you make of that. What, what meaning do you make of that? What, what do you understand by that? Not with a view of correcting them, with a view of understanding them. Because if you really create a safe environment, you'll find some fascinating worldviews and your job isn't to change those worldviews. It's to engage people with those worldviews to be constructive clinicians or constructive uh, in the team. So you don't need to change anyone's point of view. You just need to understand in their world what's their cause and effect and how does that work. And, and to genuinely put your assumption of what you think they're thinking to one side and actually learn and what's weird is you've got to you think about your partner in life. You've been together with them for how long? And they're still, because they're honest with you, often you've got no idea what they're going to do. Mm. And that's not because you're in any way ungifted. It's because they're honest with you. So what's the best way of doing it? Just say, I really want to understand your perspective on this. I really want to understand how we work together. You know, I've got some... I've got a difficult conversation. What's the best way for us to have that? How do you want me to? Right, it's this, it's this inquiry. It's this solution-focused and this willingness to play on their terms. You've still got to give the information. You still need the outcome, but you do it on their terms rather than yours. So if there was one thing, let's try and reduce the projection and the certainty and just have that little seed of doubt, which is what if you've got absolutely no idea what's going on in their mind? And you opened the, the, the discussion with growth mindset. This is about genuinely learning about that person and taking a moment to say, so tell me what motivates you and that's it. So how does that, so what were you thinking with that? Okay, that makes perfect sense. So if we want to do this, how are we best and co-create that future? And it takes a little longer at first, but the goodwill and the trust. And, and look, when you're first doing this, it all seems a little bit strange. That's fine. Say that as well. Say, look, I'm, I'm wanting to refine my leadership skills. I, I, I think I could learn a bit in, in, from you guys on engagement. So I'm going to try some new things and you tell me if it works or if it doesn't work. Peter, it's been absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for joining us. My absolute pleasure.